And now, God, uh, we come to be renewed in our minds. We come to think critically this morning. I pray, God, for people in the room who may be skeptics and cynics, doubters, atheists. I pray, God, that today would be an encouraging day. And I pray for the faithful and for the devout and for the followers of Jesus that they would remain firm and that they too would be encouraged. And pray, God, that you would say uh, what you're going to say um, through me, that I would not uh, goof it up, that I would not muddle it up. I pray, God, that clarity would happen as we talk about whether or not you exist. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, everyone, today is... Palm Sunday, really the triumphant entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Nazareth, as the scripture said earlier. And um, on Palm Sunday, um, I don't think churches like ours know much what to do with them. We have the kids come through with the palm branches, and we prepare for the week of the Passion, the Holy Week. But I think the problem is, is that most sermons in churches like ours that happen on Easter is really the Palm Sunday sermon. Because usually in churches like ours, what happens on Easter is, is they give a sermon about now we have all eternal life. All of us have eternal life. And, and uh, that's a great thing. And so let's all go off and try and be moral the rest of our life. And, you know, rest assured that you have eternal life and, and, and that we're done. And isn't that great? And I don't mean to be too cynical here, only slightly cynical, because I believe that Jesus did rise from the grave, and I do believe and confess that we would have eternal life for those who believe. So I think all of that is true. I just think, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that we're off the mark by not exploring the triumphal entry of Jesus more so and saving Easter for a day where we are all commissioned and sent out into the hope of the resurrection to do wonderful things. So I want to get things straight as we begin the week of the Passion here and do some hard work on critically thinking about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, whether or not the Gospels are true, and whether or not there is a God. <laughs> okay, just to keep it light. Um, so that's what we're kind of after here. So it's a thinking day, and uh, I don't mean to make too light of this, but I realize that this could hopefully open up a lot. As one person said, leaving the service yesterday, he said, I mean, earlier, he said, I hate it when you do this, because now I'm going to be thinking about this all day long. I said, that's good. I, I think I got a checkbox on that one. Um, so, um, what we want to begin with, then, is to begin to talk about, for those um, who have made up their mind about Christianity, and that it's true, and that the Bible is authoritative and trustworthy, I want to attempt to clarify the points of the Christian faith as told by the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers and their stories. Um, I'm convinced that if we can get our heads wrapped around Palm Sunday, then that, that's all, then Easter will be much, much clearer. So let's get into it here. I think the first thing we have to understand is that if we want to begin to even get at the idea of whether or not there's a God we're going to start with really two sides to the argument. One is going to be philosophical. Is there a God? Is that even possible? And the other one then is going to be the Gospels. And 
are the gospel writers authoritative? Are they actually telling the truth? Or are they deceived or lying or hallucinating or something like that? Okay? And then we're going to bring those two together. And so what we have to understand that if you want to understand something about God, philosophically, a great window into it is to begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see what they thought about things. Because Jesus himself is actually a, a wonderful window into what at least the Jews thought about what is God, this thing called God. We must be honest at this point, is that, and people don't like it when I say stuff like this, but we don't know God. We know some things about God. We don't even know God's real name. We don't know what God's favorite ice cream is. We don't know what his favorite color is. There's not much we actually know about God. We have a philosophical ideal about God, but let's be honest. We don't, do you know God? I mean, do you know where his address is? Do you, you know, have you ever had coffee? with? No, we don't know. But we do have this wonderful window into God through Jesus. And we at least get this idea of what is the Jewish God. And they were, of course, one of the primary people to talk about God the most. So we begin then with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and that thing. And it's curious that the gospel writers, they do not begin where most of us begin here in the 21st century, or for that matter, the 20th century, and in reality, the 19th century philosophically. We're a little dated in how we think about God. I'm just going to say that. But they are not asking the questions. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not asking the questions of, that when we think about when we think about a belief in God. They don't actually think when they get around to Jesus saying, did this really happen? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, is this a historical fact? Or how does hard science deal with a dead man rising from the grave when none of these, nobody's ever seen that sort of thing? All Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John simply say is like, I don't know what to tell you. I saw a guy, he was dead and now he's alive. And he, he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. I ate fish with a guy on the shore. I saw him walk on the water. I, he fed 5,000 people with some loaves. and fi, I, That's all I know to tell you. And of course, at this point, in our nice philosophical world, we say, well, they, they're delusional or they're lying or something. But we'll get to that in a moment. The Gospels are a story. And this is an important thing to make and make an important point. They are not a science book. The Bible is not a science book. It is a narrative. It is a story about a people encountering God and about politics and law and sociology and anthropology. It is not a 19th century science book based upon scientific method. And I think a lot of the problems these days when we want to talk about atheism and belief and so forth is that Christians themselves have colluded with this idea that the Bible is supposed to act just like some sort of, you know, Darwin's origin of the species or whatever, and that it's supposed to perform that way. And it was never intended that way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never thought about it that way. The Gospels are a story, first and foremost. Moreover, for the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm careful when I say this, they were much more interested in whether on the triumphal entry of Jesus, of whether or not Jesus was king, and then his resurrection validates the fact that he was king. They are much more interested as a story about talking about whether or not Jesus was a king and had a kingdom rather than just uh, proving the fact that there is eternal life if you believe in Jesus. 
that was not their primary agenda, albeit very, very important. All four gospels have the resurrection story. All four gospels also have the triumphal entry of Jesus six days before his crucifixion. Okay? I mean, six days before his resurrection. All right? So we have to understand this sort of thing, that the gospel is not a science book. It is a story. It's also important then at this point that if you want to do proper research and, and firm up your ideas about whether or not the gospels are real, is to actually look into the politics of the day. Politics is the major filter that you're going to get through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because what you have to understand is when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day and the people were laying down their cloaks and the palm branches and this sort of thing, it was a tremendous political statement. He's riding in slightly different than what a king would. He's riding in on a donkey, on a donkey colt. Kings rode in on mules, a bigger animal, of course, as we all know here in Missouri. And he's riding in on a donkey to say, I am a humble king. I am different than what you may think. I am not King David, I am different. The people certainly understood it because the people that very week had been singing the song already during the Passover that says the verses out of the Psalms that says, Hosanna in the highest. And there they lay down the palm branches before the king as he enters. It's called the Hallel. And the Hallel, if you want to read it, it's a wonderful thing to read during the week of the Passion, is Psalm 113 through 118. It tells the entire story of Israel, Psalm 113 through 118. And there at the very end of Psalm 118 is Hosanna in the highest with the palm branches and the royal procession. They were singing that all week and here comes Jesus capitalizing on it. And I'm going to say the word politically. He's walking into a city that is brimming full of Roman soldiers with spears and swords on every street corner. And he's walking in to a very delicate political situation that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, King Herod, and everybody else in power that was Jewish had worked out some delicate little treaties with the Roman Empire. Nobody else had these kind of special treatments. For instance, they got to keep their own coinage because it would be an idolatry for a Jew to be carrying around a coin that has Caesar, Tiberius on it, that has, it says, uh, son of God, high priest with his image, his face on it. No Jew would ever carry around an idol like that. As a matter of fact, if you look through ancient stuff and you look in, um, this is kind of a curious side effect. I can't help this kind of stuff. But if you look at ancient um, pictures of things that Jews, Jews did, they would actually put a bird's head on a human body. Because if you put a human face on it, it'd be idolatry. So they just substituted a bird face. Whatever. So, uh, so you're like, wow, that's really weird. I saw some Jewish icon and there's like a profile of a crow's head on there. Like, what the heck? Is this some sort of hieroglyphics? Or we're like, no, 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 they're just trying to avoid idolatry. Anyway, so the Jews also had that weird thing called circumcision. They also had, they believed in only one God. What a weird thing in the Roman Empire to only believe in one God. They believed in multiple gods. If you've read your Percy Jackson stuff, you know what I mean? So, I mean, they had uh, all this law and they were so precious about the land and this temple and their rights. They just seemed like such an ancient throwback civilization. Not only that, they just weren't really good at military, you know, but they sure talked like they were. So Rome, you know, just said, 
whatever. I, I really credit the Jews because they were extremely crafty, very shrewd about how they worked things out with the Roman Empire. I'm not sure the Roman Empire figured out what was being done to them, but they sure had this thing figured out. Jesus comes riding into this political situation. And if you can lean into the politics as true facts of saying like, here comes Jesus into this delicate political situation and he's going to rock the boat. The people are going to fall down and say, Hosanna, here comes the king. And the Romans are going to say, the Romans are going to say like, you've got a king other than King Herod? Is he this King David guy you're talking about? And the people are going to say, yeah, he's like that. He's going to like kick your guy's butt. And Rome's going to say, I don't think so. And the Jewish leaders are all going to say, I don't think so either. Because we've got some pretty good situation here worked out. And all we have to do is hang on. You know, the Jewish mentality, of course, is hang on. They've been doing it since, well, 722 B.C. Let's just hang on. The Holocaust, let's just hang on. Anti-Semitism, let's just hang on. Palestinians, Syria, all the rest of the conflict that you pick up the morning paper and read these days, they're all just hang on. Hang on. They're still hanging on. And that's what they were saying in Jesus' time. Let's just keep the course. And the Pharisees were saying, if we can get back to keeping Torah, if we can get back to keeping the law, then God will show up because we've been faithful. And Jesus is going to walk in and disturb all this? This is the historical situation that you find Jesus riding into Jerusalem on. Does it make sense to you then that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and if Herod, if he gets around to it, would all begin to conspire to get rid of this guy who's mouthing off about a kingdom in the face of the Roman Empire and him being a king. Quiet. You're going to get us all killed. That's what he's riding into. This is an excellent way from a gospel standpoint to say, now, could all that political information, facts, figures, historical information. Could that all be true in the Gospels? Did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John get all that stuff right? Well, I'll give you then one of the primary pieces of evidence outside of the Bible for Jesus and that the Gospels are true, at least in their politics and so forth. It comes from a first century Jewish scholar and historian named Josephus. Now, Josephus is interesting. He's writing at the same time as the gospel, I mean, as the letters of Paul and so forth are being written, or at least John in the first century. He's writing. He was Jewish, but he became a Roman citizen, I think, to save his own neck because things were not going well for the Jews from 66 AD to when Jerusalem was finally obliterated in 135 AD. Nonetheless, uh, um, Josephus writes this multi-volume set called The Antiquity of the Jews. And I happen to, for my aunt, actually have a set of them, which is really interesting. And so I give you an exact quote of a very critical passage right out of Josephus, and I think it's on the screen here. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. That is a huge statement. In other words, he's the Messiah. A Jew to say that? Hmm. And when Pilate, at the suggestion, who, Pilate, you know, the Roman governor, right? When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, 
had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again at the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. There you have it. Uh, one of the primary, as well as several other passages out of the antiquity of the Jews, a primary uh, piece of historical evidence about Jesus from outside the Christian tradition, outside the Gospels, or anything else. Now, if you're looking for more and more hard facts about Jesus and the resurrection, and you want to take this philosophical, rational approach to it, you're really going to be hard-pressed to find a lot of other facts out there. There's a few other references from the Roman records and so forth, but that's really about it. At best, these days, what you're going to find is better scholarship than perhaps went on for well over a thousand years when none of this rational scholarship stuff mattered. These days, at least for the last couple hundred years, you will find really legitimate top scholars, anthropologists, sociologists, theologians, historians. They have done, the, they've done their work. We know much more, especially because of the British Empire, know much more about the Middle East and antiquities than we ever knew than, say, like in 1400. Right? And if you study this sort of thing, you're going to find that uh, scholars these days will say that the gospel writers were telling the truth. They believed what they wrote. Whether or not you agree with it or whether or not it's true is another matter. But at least Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John believed what they wrote. Just like what they wrote about all the politics and so forth. The whole thing seemed to be true to them. I remember in seminary I had to study uh, Dr. Geza Vermesh. He taught at the uh, University in Jerusalem. He's not a Christian. He's Jewish, but he's a top New Testament scholar. So pick that apart for a vocation. And uh, so here he is, a New Testament scholar, and there are others like this. Doesn't believe in Jesus or any of the Christianity stuff. And he concludes, as a top scholar, Dr. Vermesh says, well, the gospel writers were telling the truth. They were being honest with what they perceived. That's what they think. He's not the only one. There are plenty of other scholars out there who said the gospel writers were telling the truth. They knew what they were saying. They weren't out to deceive. They, 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 we don't know if they were being delusional or whatever, but at least they believed what they wrote. This is what top scholarship says these days. You'll really be in a small minority of scholarship if you want to say that the gospel writers didn't say anything hardly historical. That's just not... This is not cool. It's not where scholarship is these days. You see, everyone, finding scientific proof of Jesus' bodily resurrection is, is just not ever going to happen, though. Because all we have are these gospel accounts and Josephus and a couple other little Roman tidbits here and there. You don't find scientific... You can't impose 19th century science onto this and come out with this verifiable 100% lockdown truth. Yeah, we know for sure Jesus rose from the dead. We can say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and the rest of the apostles, and those that saw this, certainly believed it. Over the years, I've become convinced that the problem of belief is not about facts and history. That's not our problem with belief these days. Although we do have to plow through that sort of thing. No, I think the issue of belief and unbelief is really our worldview. How we walk in philosophically 
is, will tell you a lot about what you're going to believe in this world. Um, you know, how you think the world's supposed to operate. That's your worldview. I think a lot of us these days, and I don't mean to be too critical here, but I think a lot of us are still trapped in 19th century rationalism. And I'm about ready to lose everybody right here because I'm going to start talking about rationalism. So I'll try and hurry through this. Many of us today are still trapped in 19th century rationalism. What's rationalism? Rationalism says that if you can't see it, then it's not true. So I'm shutting my eyes right now. You guys are gone. You don't exist. Oh, there you are. So I don't mean to be too comical about it because this actually still drives much of our philosophy of how we think about the world today. Immanuel Kant, if you can't spell it, it starts with a K. Immanuel Kant is the primary and probably the final voice of rationalism, and he wrote three critiques, the most famous being the critique of pure reason, which probably if you didn't sleep through Western Civ, you had to read. He's the last big voice of rationalism 200 years ago, and he comes out and he says, look, everything we see and think about, we really are just making up, well, not everything we see, but everything we think about is all made up in the mind. The mind fabricates a lot of stuff, Therefore, he concludes it's not true. Ah. So, Rene Descartes would have said, I think, therefore I am. And Immanuel Kant would have said something probably like, I see, therefore I know. Well, immediately after Kant comes two other waves of, of philosophy. Romanticism and an idealism. And Romanticism and idealism comes in and says, oh yeah? Kant? So if you think you're just making it all up, why didn't you just make up rationalism in your mind too? Huh? <laughs> in other words, we don't know anything. It's all just a grand ideal. You know, and you start having these, this is kind of trip your breaker because you're sitting around saying like, is there really a salt shaker sitting on the desk or am I just kind of, I perceive there's a salt shaker sitting on the table. Ouch. You see what I mean? But if you're a philosopher, this is what you're dealing with. I think it's important because on one hand, you have this philosophical 19th century rationalism that is still persistent when we talk about atheism and so forth because it's still saying, I can't see Jesus raising from the dead, so therefore it's not true. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't see Jesus raising from the dead. Uh, everything is just a manifestation. And then we follow up romanticism and idealism with existentialism, and we finally get around to postmodernism, which is what a lot of us are all commingled here with. And postmodernism says, look, we all know that we're all just making this stuff up. And it's a mistake, by the way, to say postmoderns don't believe in truth. They actually do believe in truth, but as one author put it these days, he said, truth for a postmodern generation says is like people passing sand from hand to hand. It's leaking all the time, and nobody knows who has a corner on the market of truth. Or to get it to a more realistic place, like postmoderns say, everything has spin. <laughs> you know, watch the evening news. You, by the way, you know this, right? You're not getting the pure truth when you watch the evening news, right? Okay, see, by your chuckles, I know everyone here is a postmodern. Because you're saying like, are you kidding me? Fox, what? You know, CNN, what? You know, William Randolph Hearst, Hearst over 100 years ago said, all right, we're going to stop having spin and, and doing these political agenda newspapers. We're only going to write newspapers with a pure, 100% objectionable truth. Laughter. So, thank you. So, like, there is no such thing as objectionable truth for a postmodern. All we have is story. And suddenly, in the beauty of a great 
philosophical wheel, we're right back at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling their story. And that's what we have. And postmoderns can say like, well, I don't know. I don't care if it's true. It's story. See, what I think we really have going on is some good postmodernism and some good 19th century rationalism, and we kind of mix it all together, and we end up with us. That's where we all kind of live. The problem, and I don't mean to be too, you know, cynical here or, or accusing, but I think the problem is that a lot of atheists, which is a curious term in itself, but a lot of atheists are stuck in 19th century rationalism. Kant is their patron saint. And it's trapping them down. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want to tell us one thing. Jesus was king. It's extremely important that he rode in Jerusalem on that donkey and cleared the temple and everything else that he did. And the authorities are all saying, Jesus Christ, superstar, who do you think you are? Over and over. That's very accurate. And the gospel writers are, are manipulating their story, saying like, see, see, I'm showing you that he was really doubted as king, but that's who he really was. And he's going to get validated on Easter morning. It's really important that he's king. The resurrection puts a stamp of approval on it. Why is it important for him to be king? Because that means we are living in a new reality. Not only just the death of death, but the kingdom of God has crashed into earth. And Jesus is the prototypical human being showing us the way we are all supposed to live out our lives. That's what the gospel writers are after. A new reality. Better than what the Jews thought. I have to keep hammering away at this whole thing about the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And to do it, I've always loved this little metaphor. Um, let me show it to you this way. I have a picture of a selfie. And the gospel photographs, uh, are they videos of Jesus? You know, because I mean, you look at a selfie and what you see is what you get. Somebody told me after last service, said, well, you know, selfies interpreted like, yeah, but you see an old guy wearing a Jayhawk shirt trying to, you know, my daughter said it wasn't a real selfie because I didn't have a Starbucks in my hand. But, um, so whatever. But nonetheless, you know, you see what you get. Are the Gospels a selfie? Are they a photograph? Are they videotape of Jesus' life? Do we have videotape of Jesus? No. So it would be a mistake then from 19th century rationalism to say, I want to see the videotape of Jesus. I want to see the videotape of him being killed, stop breathing, heart stop, and then raised from the dead and everything's hunky-dory. I want to see that. They're like, well, good luck, because it's not going to happen. You don't have the gospel stories as videotape. Well, what do we have then? Well, let's go to the other extreme. They're just abstract paintings. Make up whatever Jesus you want to make up. Now, this viewpoint of Jesus as an abstract painting where we have no historicity about Jesus has dominated things really since, well, for a long time, for decades, really came to its head in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And has finally philosophically been put to death. This is where when you walked into Barnes and Noble or Borders or one of those other defunct bookstores because Amazon took over. This is, you walk in and you'll see those titles on the end cap in the religious studies section. Those ones were the titles of the ones that I looked at. John Dominic Crossan's The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant. That's all he was, was a Jewish peasant. He didn't have anything to say. He didn't raise him dead. Uh, or Marcus Borg, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time because Marcus Borg had it figured out. 
Elizabeth Schuster Ferenza, in memory of her, a feminist theological reconstruction of Christian origins. Robert Funk, the five gospels. You're like, hey, aren't there only four? Like, no, because Robert Funk put together a fifth gospel, the search for the authentic words of Jesus. Burton Max, a myth of innocence. J.P. Myers, a marginal Jew. He's just a marginal Jew. What actually kind of curious about all of these, these guys are all kind of college professors. They're all kind of nerdy, and they walk around in Tweety jackets, and you end up with a Jesus out of all these books that kind of goes around at a Friday night, you know, academic party with a glass in his hand telling little witisms, you know, and sounding like a college professor. They're like, why would you kill a guy like that? He's not doing anything. Anyway. I don't know about you, but this sort of abstract painting of Jesus, this is all I heard in Western Civ, in my psychology class, and even in my astronomy class. What's out there? I don't know. Just make it up. What do we have then if Jesus, if we don't have videotape, and philosophically we don't just have an abstract painting, but we actually do have some politics in the Gospels. There are some facts to it and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not just trying to make things up. What do we have? We have a portrait. The Gospels are portraits. I think it's the best description of them. You can kind of tell who it is, but it's been massaged and conditioned. Is it a lie? No. It's somebody's interpretation. And like the Mona Lisa, if it's done well, you would sit around and say like, I think there's more to that smile than I think. There's something in those eyes. The painter, the author, is trying to tell us something. I see the historical real person, but they've colored it different. What are they trying to say? That's what we have with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have spin. They're all trying to get it done. They're writing, in other words, biographies. I like biographies. Maybe some of you all like biographies. I like biographies of a certain kind. Um, One's where there, one where there's enough historical evidence to maybe have some pictures and so forth, like I read uh, Eisenhower's biography, uh, Einstein's biography, and one of my favorite was David Donald's biography on Abraham Lincoln. You know, David Donald is out to tell you about Abraham Lincoln, but he is not lying. There, in there, there are letters from Lincoln, there's court records of Lincoln, there's the comments from his neighbors, there's letters from his wife and about his sons and all that tragedy and all that sort of thing. David Donald wants to make a point. He has an agenda. He has a spin. He's not trying to say that Lincoln, you know, was uh, trying to give the country back to the Native Americans or something like that. You know, and we're like, yeah, that's silly. You know what Donald's agenda was for Abraham Lincoln? He said Lincoln's entire agenda was to make the country one, was to create the union. Because up to that point, it was the United States. Uh, these are the United States. And after the Civil War, it became, we are the one United States. You know what I mean? That was his agenda, was keeping things together. Because otherwise, we were going to fall apart and France and anybody else, well, not France, but people were, in Europe were wanting to come take over. <laughs> France was having their own problems by that time, right? <clears throat> Um, Donald, though, in telling a biography, didn't lie. But he did condition it and paint a portrait of Lincoln. And that's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing. There is historical fact to it, but it's selective. As a matter of fact, it's actually a powerful reason that the Gospels are legitimate because they actually borrow from each other and they rearrange everything. John's a little bit off to the side. He's got his own agenda. But 
But the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all borrowing. And you're like, well, I think I read that stuff in Mark. I read that over in Matthew. Or did I read it in Luke? They're like, yeah, that's right. They're taking each other and saying, I'm, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to arrange the stories this way. I'm telling a different story than Matthew, says Mark. Okay. That adds credibility. It says, same stories, different arrangement. That's good. Ultimately, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are after two major things when they say they're gospels. One, they want to tell us who Jesus is. He is king. And two, they want you and me, the reader, they want our all-out, sold-out, following allegiance to this thing called the kingdom of God that was started by Jesus. It's a sales pitch. And they want you to buy into it. And they're, they're pleading with you, saying there is so much to this if you'd only become the new humanity. When we get done with the Gospels, when we get to Easter next week, it is not just a moment where we all walk out with a happy bliss that we all now have eternal life. That may very well be true and that death is dead and that may very well be true. But we would be missing the mark of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if that's all we had. Instead, next week, we will celebrate and talk about the fact that the world has been remade and that the new era the new kingdom has begun and that you and I are sent out, sent out to express and be the new people of God. You have a story. And there is a party in heaven going on now for you. And it is commissioning you to a wonderful, great life. You are not some existential fertilizer that when you die you rot as Bertrand Russell said that is not your end according to the gospel story you are meant for something much much greater you are caught up in this cosmic story of reality of Jesus being present in you as the new human the one and you are swept up into this grand story that's what you were meant for. Not just to re-fertilize re the planet. That's why Easter is so important. That's why he's riding into Jerusalem. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trying to tell us. Because everyone, if the existentialists are right, if Albert Camus and John Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell and Ernest Hemingway, for that matter, if they're all right, then we just, if the dead are not raised, as Paul says, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And game's up. And that's not a very happy thought. What we need is hope that's based in history. And so we take our 19th century rationalism and this political thing that's coming out of the Gospels and it only goes so far, and rationalism only goes so far, and you are left with this gap here that's called faith. It's reasonable, but it's somewhere in here 
if you're a skeptic, a doubter, a Christian, an atheist, you will have to step into the gap and realize it is faith. It's not blind faith. It's not stupid faith. It's a reasonable faith that's done its homework about the Gospels and about how we think in our worldview. It says, I believe more than if I didn't believe. I can do no other. We should be honest as Christians that that's what we believe in. See, faith, everyone, is not what you believe. It's how you believe. It's not what you believe. It's how you believe. I know one thing, and it's my own biography, and I believe that a party began in heaven for me when some little 16-year-old, skinny, long-haired, guitar-hacking, druggy, weird, nerdy kid fell down on his knees on a Monday night in January in his room in front of his dresser and said, God, help me. Expecting nothing to happen. And suddenly, without me knowing it, I'm swept up in a story that's way beyond me. And if you go around this church, you'll find story after story after story, a lot like that one. And we call that salvation. Would you stand with me, please? If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, says Paul. This is more than just mere words, and I wouldn't impose it upon you right now after what I've just said. But next week will be a challenge to say, do you believe what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said? Do you believe? Because your entire destiny depends upon it. So prepare this week as we too are journeying towards Jerusalem and the cross and the empty tomb. Father, be with us this morning. I pray God again for courage for everyone in the room. May this week, I, may this week be special. May this week be holy. May it be passionate. May it be a journey, one foot in front of the other, marching toward, marching toward the cross. God, I pray for those this morning that are skeptical and doubtful and don't know what they know about things and have serious doubts. I pray, God, that you would challenge them to push through these things and know what they know. The same thing said for Christians. May we know what we know. May we be a people of conviction, not blind faith, reasonable faith. May it all get validated next Sunday. In the name of Jesus, we have asked this, and we go forward. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.